From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Each year, 800,000 people in the U.S. suffer a stroke. Of those, 85% experience an ischemic stroke, in which blood clots block the flow of blood to the brain. Besides this primary injury, ischemic strokes can also cause a serious secondary injury, brain swelling. In our last conversation with Dr. Taylor Kimberly, we discussed the importance of understanding and treating stroke and secondary injury. Dr. Kimberly returns this month to speak in depth about the multi-site phase three trial he is involved in that his team hopes will yield a treatment to prevent brain swelling in stroke patients. Taylor Kimberly is the chief of the Division of Neurocritical Care at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Kimberly, thank you for joining us. Welcome back. Thank you again for the invitation to talk about some of uh, my group's research on stroke. So the last time we had you on, you told us about a promising treatment that you're studying for cerebral edema or brain swelling. Could you remind our listeners why this is an important area of research and what treatment you're studying? Sure. Um, um, Maybe first I'll give a little bit of background about stroke. Sure. Um, Stroke uh, occurs in about 800,000 U.S. patients each year. So it's very common. Mm -hmm. There are several types of stroke. There is ischemic stroke where a blood clot blocks one of the blood vessels to the brain, depriving it of oxygen and nutrients. There's a hemorrhagic stroke where the blood vessel, rather than becoming blocked, bursts and blood leaks out into the brain. And then there's a third type called subarachnoid hemorrhage where there is a, uh, the, the blood leaks out of the blood vessel, but rather then leaking out inside the brain, it leaks out on the surface of the brain. So those are the three types of stroke. My laboratory studies ischemic stroke, which is also the most common. It accounts for about 85% of those 800,000 strokes annually. So it's a big problem, and it causes a lot of morbidity and mortality. Uh, Not only is it common, but then it leaves patients with deficits where they're weak on one side of the body or the other, and it's a big burden on their uh, functioning and a big burden on families and society. Uh, So our laboratory focuses on uh, developing uh, uh, treatments that can help reduce the neurological injury associated with ischemic stroke. There are two uh, phases of injury, of brain injury, uh, after ischemic stroke. There's the very acute initial phase where the blood clot 
blocks the blood vessel. And the part of the brain that relies on that blood vessel for oxygen and nutrients suddenly no longer has it. And the cells in the brain start dying. Although there's a common uh, saying that it, uh, a neuron survives for only five minutes, it's actually not true. They, the brain cells can survive for longer, but it's on the order of hours. Mm-hmm. And in that acute phase, the focus of treatment is to reopen the blood vessel. And how's that done? That's done in two ways. One, um, we can give a medication called intravenous TPA that's a clot-busting medication that can dissolve the clot. When we give it, though, it's only effective in about a third of the patients. So, So one out of three patients will actually have their blood clot dissolved. It's not effective in the other two-thirds. So a second treatment, which just in the last year or two has really come to the foreground as a very important aspect of acute stroke treatment, is a thrombectomy. And this is a surgical procedure where a catheter is inserted in the femoral artery, threaded up through the aorta into the blood vessels in the brain, and there's a mechanical device that grabs onto the clot and removes it. And this uh, treatment, which is relatively new, is exceptionally effective. And the femoral artery, so that's going up through the leg and all the way into the through the heart and then all the way up to the brain. That's right. Uh, the, the catheter goes right past the heart. Past so rather the heart, than okay. going through it it, yeah. it, it it passes right by it in the aorta. But yes, right. it's it's a it's a um, a highly specialized mm-hmm. treatment uh, that uh, that's very effective. But uh, even in the cases where a patient is successfully administered TPA or is successfully treated with thrombectomy, and certainly in the cases where they don't qualify, there's a second phase of injury. And that second phase of injury is what my laboratory studies. In this form of secondary brain injury, the most common type is brain swelling or brain edema. Mm-hmm. And this develops over a period of two to four days. And the problem with it is that not only have you, do you, do you have the initial part of the brain that's damaged from the lack of, of oxygen and, and nutrients, but now that starts to swell and pushes uh, on the surrounding normal brain tissue, and it mm-hmm. starts damaging other areas of the brain. And why does the brain start to swell? Well, that's a great question, uh, and it's one that we spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to answer. Swelling is a common response to any injury in the body, frankly. As, as you know, if you uh, twist your ankle, for example, you'll, you'll develop swelling. The same is true in the brain. It occurs on a slightly slower time scale than uh, a sprained ankle, for example, but it still occurs over the subsequent days. Our best understanding is that the process is driven by uh, inflammation uh, from uh, where the dead and dying brain cells trigger an inflammatory response, and that in turn leads to leakage in the blood-brain barrier, and so fluid that normally is 
it, it cannot get into the brain suddenly can leak in. And that leads to this swelling process. Mm-hmm. And what's clear is that when the swelling develops, it alters uh, the trajectory of recovery for a patient who, who has this. So uh, if a patient you know, has the initial injury over the next three to six months, they'll, there'll be a very intensive period of rehabilitation and recovery. And that follows a certain trajectory, a certain path. When swelling occurs, it knocks that person down to a lower trajectory, and it, it ultimately prevents <clears throat> uh, them from achieving or maximizing their, their recovery. So it's a major um, form of injury that we think, if we can prevent it from occurring, can have a significant impact. Great. And so... Um what is so let's get back to the the way that you're trying to address swelling what was um in the recent study that you published um what were the what was the treatment that you were looking at yeah uh so the uh the treatment was using a medication that uh was originally approved by the food and drug administration the fda um uh, several decades ago for diabetes. And it, uh, it's a drug called gliburide or globenclamide, and it uh, binds to and alters an ion channel uh, called SUR1, sulfonylurea receptor 1. So SUR1 is expressed normally in the pancreas. And it when, when the channel that it's a part of is operating properly, it regulates insulin secretion and, and controls glucose levels in your, in your body. Uh, in the setting of diabetes where that is altered, when you take the drug, it alters the uh, probability of the ion channel opening, which in turn alters insulin secretion. That's, that's how this um, molecular pathway was originally discovered. It turns out that uh, SUR1 is upregulated after brain injury. So it's not normally uh, functioning in the brain, but after a brain injury like stroke, in the surrounding injured tissue, it's upregulated. And in the setting of severe stroke in particular, uh, the ion channel becomes dysregulated and leads to. Uh, to opening of the ion channel, uh, ions pass through and water follows uh, an osmotic gradient and in turn that leads to brain swelling. So that's, uh, that work was done in, uh, uh, wasn't done in my laboratory, it was done in the laboratory of Mark Smard at University of Maryland. But um, I've been involved in the clinical translation of that uh, basic science discovery uh, from the get-go, mm-hmm. when when we first began testing this drug in stroke patients, and uh, and uh, that began with a very small pilot study in stroke patients, uh, we were fortunate in that we knew the safety profile of the drug already because it had been used for so long in right, diabetes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were able to skip an important initial step that's pretty common mm-hmm. in clinical trial development. 
And so we jumped into uh, studying stroke patients right away. In the trial called Games Pilot, which now is about five years, five or six years ago, we were just uh, making sure we could follow the design, the scientific design that we conceived of. Uh, and uh, after successfully enrolling 10 patients, then uh, we moved on to the phase two trial called Games RP, which is uh, the trial you were referring to that was finished now a few years ago. Uh, and, and in that study, uh, we were beginning to evaluate the efficacy of the drug in the patient population, the stroke patient population that we think it might be beneficial for. So now you're embarking on, or you've embarked on a phase three trial. Could you tell us a little bit about getting to the phase three and where you are now with that? Yeah, it's um, it's been a little bit of a circuitous journey, and uh, but it's uh, really been a privilege to be involved all along the way. Um, at uh, at the time of the phase two study, we were uh, working with a a small startup pharmaceutical company, uh, and we ran the trial in eighteen centers in the United States. You know, as I mentioned, we were focused on a homogeneous patient population. Another way of saying that is it's a rare stroke patient population. Okay. So, so recruiting those specific patients was a challenge, would you say? Absolutely. Yeah. It was a challenge, and we worked very closely with those 18 sites mm -hmm. to to you know train and prepare them so that when that rare patient came through their emergency department, they were ready to enroll. Got it. It helped, too, that... Uh, at the time, there was really nothing available uh, to these patients, so they uh, there was a huge unmet need. And, and when patients and families, uh, even in this very acute setting, when, when they were confronted with this disease, they were very open, willing uh, uh, to participate in mm -hmm. the clinical trial. And so that's how, when it, somebody came into the emergency department with a stroke, acute injury, and then the sites would... Um, approach them and ask them if they wanted to enroll in the trial. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so what it required uh, was screening for these patients 24-7, wow. which, as you can imagine, is a very difficult thing to do. It required sites that already had a clinical research infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, very uh, sophisticated and well-developed academic centers. Um, and then a readiness to to move as soon as one of these patients was identified. Mm -hmm. And just to put it in perspective, at um, at my center, uh, where we have a, a multidisciplinary stroke research group. And this is at MGH? At Mass General Hospital, mm -hmm. that's right. Uh, we had, over the course of two years, we had 10 patients come through our emergency department and uh, so, so it's mm. it's one patient every other month. Right, and so this is why you had to have so many different centers to that's right to increase the number. That's know? right, and so now in the phase three study, um, well, in between the phase two and the phase three study, uh, in addition to having conversations with the FDA about what an acceptable definition of outcome is, mm -hmm. clinical outcome in the patient population. 
Uh, running a phase three trial is a uh, is a large organizational challenge, particularly when you're studying a rare form of stroke. By definition, we knew we would need many centers and sites, and that we would have to expand beyond uh, beyond the U.S. and, and look in Europe and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's unfortunately it's a very costly enterprise to to run any phase three trial, but given the organizational challenges that were unique to our study design and the patient population we were studying, uh, that certainly was the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, although I certainly wasn't involved in, in these discussions, uh, the uh, startup pharmaceutical company uh, recognized that they needed to partner with a larger pharmaceutical company to, to successfully uh, 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 conduct a phase three trial. And uh, a, a company called Biogen uh, was very interested in the results of the phase two study and and signed on to help. So now um, we're partnering with uh, with Biogen in the phase three trial, and together with uh, their statisticians and based on the information that we had, the preliminary information on clinical outcome in the phase two trial, we estimate that we need 680 patients randomized to either placebo or the active drug glyburad, uh, uh, randomized one-to-one, so 50-50. And that that's a, that should be enough patients where we'll be able to answer the question of whether or not the drug is effective. Now, to, to enroll 680 patients over a couple years, uh, that requires uh, at least 180 uh, medical centers wow. uh, to to enroll enough patients. You know, imagine they're enrolling maybe two. Uh, you know, they're at a high volume center like Mass General. There are five that come through in a year, and you might be able to. You're not going to enroll everyone right. necessarily because yeah. not everyone will consent. So you run those numbers, and, and the, even the back of the envelope calculations, you pretty quickly realize that you need a very well organized system and infrastructure uh, to uh, bring all of these centers, uh, uh, train them on the protocol, and uh, assist and support them in successfully enrolling these large stroke patients. And so, how much do you have to do? in terms of ensuring that the protocol is being adhered to as the trial is going? Do you visit the sites or does Biogen take the lead in doing that and send people around to, how much checking up is there? Uh, I, I think this is the critical question in, um, in frankly, in any phase trial. But uh, one of the keys of any successful clinical trial, so if you look at the trials that are run successfully and you compare uh, the factors or compare the differences with trials that are, are, are with slow enrollment or, or are unsuccessful, one of the key factors is engagement and enthusiasm of every site. And so that's the goal. And there are many ways to uh, facilitate that. Uh, when you're talking about 
180 or 200 sites. It's not practical for any, and by the way, in many countries, some of which have other languages besides English as their primary language, it's not possible for, uh, without a very well-developed and sophisticated clinical trial infrastructure in place. So Biogen is, um, is taking the lead on the, on the organizational aspects of, of um, uh, communicating with sites. But, but in parallel, we've had many conversations and we continue to uh, think of ways to engage with sites to build enthusiasm, to help them with their screening process, to identify the patients, to help them with um, following the protocol once they have an enrollment. And uh, in my experience, uh, that uh, has to occur at many levels. There are research coordinators. uh, There are uh, clinical trial monitors that Biogen works with. There has to be communication on that level. There also has to be communication at the site investigator level together with the overall uh, global lead uh, uh, of which I'm one of two. Um, And the level of engagement has to be uh, uh, as frequent as as possible. So So, what are some of the ways that you do that, like build enthusiasm and keep the engagement happening while you know, maintaining your other responsibilities and understanding that it's not possible to visit every single site. Yeah. If I, if I figured out a solution, how to, how to solve that. Right. uh, (laughs) Well, what are some of the ways that you're trying to solve it? Yeah. Um, so we have, uh, we have, uh, regional, uh, investigator meetings. That's, that's sort of the, the standard way where, uh, Biogen will bring in, uh, a site uh, investigators and coordinators to a location. We'll spend a few days with them, mm-hmm. uh, training them on the protocol, talking with them, meeting with them, and discussing the, you know, the issues. Uh, what what has made other sites successful? Help share best practices. Those sorts of things. So that's a very typical way, and we've been doing that uh, in in Europe, in the U.S. and um, and Australia as well, uh, and, and Japan. Um, uh, so that's that's the first layer. The second layer is that um, we make ourselves available. So if a site or site investigator has a question, they're always welcome, and we're happy to receive those uh, th- th- those uh, those phone calls or emails. Of course, we will uh, pull in all of the necessary. Uh, folks who have to be involved in that conversation, but we want accessibility um, uh, in the setting of uh, uh, national and international conferences. We'll have investigator meetings, mm-hmm. informal gatherings, and formal gatherings, and interact with them. Uh, and anytime uh, 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 I uh, interact with a site, and some I collaborate with other investigators at other sites for other projects as well. Each of those interactions is an opportunity to check in with them and, uh, and see if they have any questions. We're 
also in the process of setting up a formalized uh, uh, check-in process with all the sites that we're, we're creating a core group of lead investigators in uh, the, uh, these are uh, stroke uh, trialists and investigators that are well respected in each of their countries and we're pu putting together a uh, group of, of uh, country leads that together we will all reach out to the sites individually uh, and check in on a regular basis to see if they have any questions or issues or to help them with any challenges. And all that information, of course, will flow uh, and, and leverage the organizational infrastructure that, that Biogen has, has put in place. So, so there are many touch points and in many ways in which we try to interact with sites. And it's critically important because we rely on the sites to, to not only enroll the patient, but follow the protocol. Uh, and, and if they don't do that well, then we're not able to answer the scientific question that we set out to answer. Uh, and, and so trying to help support them in, in consistently managing these large stroke patients across all the sites is, is mission critical for uh, determining whether the drug uh, is, is effective or not. Mm -hmm. there, there is, um, I, uh, when I first started clinical uh, trial work and um, uh, got a, a master's of medical science, uh, there was this concept that I came across uh, called regression to the mean. Mm -hmm. And I understood that in concept, but now um, uh, in this process of implementing a complicated and geographically distributed phase three trial, I uh, understand it in, in practice as well. And the idea is that as you go from early phase trials where you have more control over the experimental conditions, you're going to have the maximum effect size. And as you continue on with larger phase trials till ultimately you conduct your pivotal phase three, at that point you're at many sites, a greater number of sites, every center has a different or slightly different way of treating these patients. And all of that injects variation mm -hmm. on how these patients do. And so that uh, eats away or it, it, um, it minimizes or, or, or decreases the effect size of the actual compound you're testing and that and, and therefore your effect size regresses to the mean. Mm -hmm. it's, it's important. You, you, you want to have a compound that can still be effective in any circumstance. Right. This so yeah, this is the generalizability issue. You, it's right. got to be generalizable. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. It, it's an important step in the rigorous analysis of a of a uh, of a new drug. But um, but it's it's important to be aware and try to mitigate the potential regression to the mean. And and so engagement of the sites, being accessible, helping them with enrollment keeping them enthusiastic. These are all ways that we uh, are not only helping to complete the trial, but to, to complete it 
in as rigorous a way as possible in minimizing the regression to mean effect. Interesting. Yeah, it's I th I think that's a interesting point that on one hand you could say, oh well, now that I've opened up this trial to all these different sites and people all around the world, the effect size is getting is decreasing like you said. But that's what happens when you have a that's what you have to test. You have to test like, well, it does well in a very controlled animal model in a laboratory in Maryland. But once we start giving actual people this treatment with all these factors, with all the variations in hospital protocols and different populations, characteristics, you want to make sure that you have that effect even in this very highly variable real world environment. That's right. And there was, uh, in my view, a very uh, instructive publication that came out about this issue. It's now about 10 years old. And the title of the publication was uh, Over 1,000 Compounds Have Been Successfully Tested in, in Animal Models and None Have Succeeded in Patients. And that, to me, that shows or illustrates the challenge of translating a, um, a uh, potential compound that targets uh, a, an experimental pathway uh, and determining whether or not it's uh, effective in, in patients. And you have to have a really high tolerance for failure, and you have to expect that. And, and some of that is just bi biological differences between animal models and stroke patients. Some of it is this issue of regression to the mean. And some of it is that we don't, we're, we don't have enough information about human stroke to know what the right group of stroke patients is to test it in. And unfortunately, when you have a negative trial, you don't know why necessarily, uh, but um, I think those are some of the factors that account for why it's so difficult to take a, um, an exciting discovery in the laboratory and figure out how to turn it into a successful drug that changes patients' lives. Dr. Kimberly, thank you very much for coming in. It was great to have this conversation with you. Thank you again. It was my pleasure. Next time on Think Research. And the idea was that if we talk with you, somebody that has these experiences, will you guide us and tell us all the things that we should do in order to build a project around your experiences and understand what it's like from your perspective. Include your voice in the data that we're generating, include your face in many instances, and then couple all of that with genomic information and share it with the world so that we can hopefully inspire a lot of other people to use that data to generate their own hypotheses, to drive their own experiments so that they also can um, publish on it, build clinical trials off of it, and hopefully accelerate the pace at which research is done. We hear from Dr. Corey Painter of the Broad Institute about her genomics mission towards a cure for cancer patients. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. research.